<clears throat> Again, that's Judges 18, 1 through 31, the whole chapter. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, what do you report? They said, arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an uns unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerarim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mana'a Dan to this day, because it is west of Kiriath-Jerarim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there, there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, 
You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So this this is the voice I got. Um, it reminds me of um, learning to drive stick in um, uh, my first year of college. And it sound, car sounded pretty good in first year. You took it into second, third it all starts to fall apart. So I've got to sort of watch myself. And the backup plan is that it's coming back up here. If this does not work, um, I, want to, I want to apologize again to the Sunday School uh, folks this week. And we're canceled because I was sick. Um, <clears throat> I thought a lot about this passage again this morning, as I always do. <clears throat> and... Um, there was a, an actor in the 1930s. He was a character actor named Eugene Pellet. And this is the voice that he had. And uh, you, you'd see him come on, on screen. If you watched enough movies at that time, you couldn't wait for him to open his mouth with this froggy voice. But he was a character actor. You did not want to hear him talk through the whole movie. So um, be patient. Watch my lips. That might help you. Um, remember, we saw last week, we, we saw merely a family case study. But you can bet that all of the Israelites that read about Micah's family saw themselves. And in the study of Micah and his mom and Micah Jr., and, uh, and then the Levite that they hired, we saw a family spiral downward into apostasy. We called it a very dark Mayberry. Um, uh, this town with one family, because for the first time in Judges, here was a group or family that had Canaanites or Amorites or Moabites, or Philistines, or any enemies, to pull them down into apostasy. All they needed was their own heart. That was all they needed. Easy to do. In the case of Micah, 
made a series of decisions, decisions based on convenience, decisions based on uh, preferences that he had, decisions that simply expressed independence, but which at the same time always violated God's commands. All those decisions for convenience, they all violated God's commands. And it's key to remember the distinction that we made. There's nothing wrong, remember, with having it your own way when it comes to a hamburger. Okay? Um, one of you um, made me laugh this week because after the service last week, uh, you were inspired to go to Burger King and post on Facebook and tag me on it that you went to Burger King and had it your own way. <clears throat> and you even took a picture of the sign that says, order your own way with our self-order kiosks. So no problem with that. That's, that's okay to do. But when it comes to a world where every single one of us wants what we want, when we want it, and in every category of life, the world is filled with little Hitlers. Little Hitlers that want it their own way. And it becomes a world of great conflict, separation, division, disagreement, a terrible place to live. Micah makes the decisions to bypass God's stated commands to worship him at the temple in Shiloh, a town not too far away. But it was simply inconvenient for him. He wanted what he wanted. So he built his own counterfeit sanctuary, complete with his own array of idols and his own counterfeit priest, one that he himself ordains. <clears throat> now, this apostasy creep that we're going to see this week now spreads to a whole tribe of people moves from one family to a whole tribe. And all of this comes to us in a very strange form because this chapter, I want you to think about it this way, is, is a satire. It's a bit like watching The Office or 30 Rock. This is Israelite office, right? There's not a person in this chapter that can be taken seriously as a serious follower of God. Not one. And, and, and this is a legitimate, in a sense, a genre of the time. There are other stories that are told this way. So <coughs> watch what happens as we go through the story. And we're going to laugh at these people, but very quickly, hopefully, like what happens when you watch The Office, you go, Oh, I know that person. Oh, I know them too. And then there's that day when somebody walks up to your cubicle and goes, do you watch The Office? And they're telling you, I know you. <laughs> right? That's in here too. Okay. So uh, three things we want to look at. We're, we're in a sense, we're looking at false religion. Last week we, we looked at idolatry, but now we're looking at personal idolatry as a, has flowered into a whole religion, a whole false religion. And so we're looking how false religion is always a problem. 
always, today, potentially for this church, potentially for the church of Jesus Christ. Number two, false religion makes you stupid. That should sound familiar to you. False religion makes you stupid. And third, the tragedy of false religion. There's a little verse there at the very end, which is just tragic to read. Suddenly it's not funny anymore. So let's look at those three things. False religion is always a problem. <clears throat> so here you have Micah and his family. I, I, I call them the Micans. Um, they're doing everything their own way um, with their own home worship, worshiping their own idols, <coughs> with their own ephod in their own sanctuary, with their own priest, minding their own business. And suddenly along come the Danites. I was just thinking how interesting the tribal discussions might be in the Brock's household this week. Are the Danites going to win? Are the Micans going to win? And, you know, now, here again, we're not just talking about one family anymore. With the Danites, we're talking about all tribes. And when they come along in verse 1, we're told that they're looking for some land. Now, this is the very first bit of historical satire. Why are the Danites looking for land? Hmm? It says there, Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. <coughs> Until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. And that's true. No land had fallen to them. It had already been assigned to them. They were given a piece of land. We heard it read for us earlier, and it was the, the part of where the Amorites were living. And what Dan was supposed to do is move into the land, push out the Amorites, <clears throat> push out their false idols, and move in. And they never did. Dan got actually pushed back up in the mountains. Never took the land. That's why they're still looking. And they want to do it their way. They don't want to have any battles. They don't want to have any bloodshed. They don't want to have any conflict. They want to do it nice and easy. Right? They tend to be lazy. In fact, there's no way I can't give this away. But the tribe of Dan, if you look at them throughout Scripture, are the saddest tribe that there is. The saddest tribe that there is. In Revelation 7, verses 5 and 8, you don't have to turn there. <coughs> you see the list of all the tribes that are in glory. They're all listed there. But one's missing. It's the tribe of Dan. Now, there are 12, but because Dan was apostate, we have a situation where Jacob's grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, in a sense, took the place of Dan right? to make up for, for that. So Dan is cut off, and it's just you go through this passage, it becomes clear why. This is a self-inflicted wound. This is an unforced error. Nobody made but they always did things the way that Micah and his family did it. They did it their own 
They live life their own way. On a large scale, they were always taking the easy way out. God told all the tribes to move into the territories, push out whatever pagan tribes were there. (coughs) Dan did not trust God. Dan did not trust that if they went into battle, that they would be successful. So they did it their own way. Their own way here is to send out five spies to find land that was going to be easy to capture and easy to maintain. But specifically, they wanted land that they don't have to fight for. A virtual gift. And as they come across this home, Likely, Micah's got a series of buildings. It's kind of a compound. They hear a voice. They hear an accent. They hear Jonathan. He's probably singing like the cantor. And it's music to their ears. He's singing in Hebrew. They're nowhere near Jerusalem. So here they they, they hear their own mother tongue. And they stop and think. And they say, wow. Mike has got his own compound with his own alternative priesthood, with his own local services. They're here. They're not in Shiloh. And they've got this alternative temple. And they've got questions. Did you notice all the questions in verse 3? Who who, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Are you really worshiping here? And what is your business here? How are you making a living? These are not very subtle spy questions. Right? <laughs> now, this is when the satire truly reaches Monty Python proportions. Because here you have these Jewish Danite spies <coughs> speaking to a Jewish Levite priest. With the word priest, I use scare quotes, right? Because Jonathan's a Levite, but he's not a priest. He's been he's had a false fake ordination by Micah. Right? He's never been ordained. He's a fake, he's an imposter. Though that was good enough for Micah's family. So the Danites, who like to have things their own way to side to. Ask this rent-a-priest. If their mission is going to be successful, good question. They take they, they, they talk to this fake priest and they say, can you ask if our mission is going to be successful? Now that sounds like a godly question on the face of it. And do you realize that they know what a real priest would actually say in answer to that question. A real priest would not be here. Right? He'd be at Shiloh. And what a real priest would say would be, go back. There are these people called the Amorites in a town that God has for you. He's still there waiting for you to walk by faith as he does the rest. Go back. That's a hard thing to do, but that's your 
That's what God called you to do. That's what a real priest would say. Now that's our first point. Stick your finger here in Judges 18 and, and turn to 2 Timothy 4.3. This, this is the first way that we're just like the, the Danites. 2 Timothy 4.3. This is an evergreen passage. This is happening on the campus. This is happening in our homes. This is happening to the church and our culture. Right? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Right? Accumulating teachers to suit their own passages, passages. <clears throat> That's who Jonathan is here. He tells them what they want to hear. Jonathan puts on the ephod for them. He intones these words that no doubt sound priestly to them, godly even. But the words he actually speaks are so vague. Did you notice? They could fit almost any outcome. Verse 6. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. If you come up to me after the worship service, don't come up too close. And you say, Pastor, should I go to um, Stephen's potluck tonight? I would say, should they go? The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. That's going to be one holy potluck. But it fits. It works. That's what we do. Now look, I don't care one whit about the prince and the princess of Sussex. But I've had a lot of time to read about them this week. (coughs) But what they've done this week outlines what so many of us are doing with every bit of wisdom that once came before, and that is throw it out and find something that works for me, right? Now hear me, this is an illustration. And I say this specifically because I found it. I found over the years, actually, that illustrations involving the royal family, it's a very risky thing to do because some of you all love those people. <clears throat> it's an illustration, okay? My point is, the way the whole royal royalty thing used to be done was you realize that if you're a royal person, you get pampered forever. But your life is not your own. Right? You never have to pay for a thing. But you're a public servant 100% of the time. Right? And as one writer put it this way this week, he said, it's possible for people to ditch royal family. That's what happened in the Revolutionary War here in America. We ditched the royal family. Right? But it's not possible for a royal family to ditch the people. It doesn't work. You cannot resign from a contract that you never signed and which was never written down. The only quick way out is the one that the Bourbons took, the guillotine. 
Now, we laugh, but the point is this. Harry and Meghan want to carve out a new progressive role for this institution. But there's no new progressive role for a monarchy other than renouncing the titles and all the hereditary privileges, returning the palaces and parks to the people to whom they once belonged, and then rejoining us, the great unwashed, and be a regular Joe and walk the streets of New York where you see a famous person go, famous person. Right? Because it's just like the rest of us. None of which is going to happen. In other words, we can reinvent, we can reinvent what we rebrand what we want royalty to be. But if you're not really doing what everyone knows you're called to do, then the emperor has no clothes. And I use that illustration to say that we want what Harry and Meghan want spiritually. We have itching ears always wants something else than what the scriptures tell us. Let's apply it this way. In John 10, Jesus speaks about himself as the good shepherd. But there's a contrast there. Jesus talks about himself as a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who loves his sheep. But the contrast there is to one called the hireling or the hired hand. The hired hand serves himself and he sells himself out to the highest bidder and cares not for his sheep but for himself. Pastorally, the hireling, hired hand, maybe marries people to people that should not be married. Or we'll try to grow a church by means that the Bible doesn't give us to grow a church. Or to flatten or wash down or mitigate sin so that people will like us. That what we must not do. If you ever are appointed in this church to a search committee or for elders and deacons, watch out. The opposite as Jesus, as lover of his people, is the hireling. And it reveals their false religion. Which takes us to the second point. Wow. Two more points of this voice. Okay. Bill, is there anything you can do back there? Okay. (laughs) I was just thinking, you know, miraculous Bill can turn me into, you know. No. False religion makes you stupid, all right? Now, some of you can be reminded of a few weeks back when we were looking at Samson, remember? And we were talking about Samson, and we said, sin makes you stupid, okay? That Samson, for all of his James Bond-like qualities, always quick with a joke, strong, could slay anybody in his path, that he did incredibly stupid stuff. And that's because sin will make you stupid, weak and stupid. So how then does false religion work the same way? And here it is. False religion is the superstructure. False religion is the 
high steel, the rebar, if you will, that holds and traps you into your sin without you ever knowing it. Without you ever knowing it. Notice, friends, how much self-deception, humorous self-deception, but self-deception is going on in the passage. The Danites are involved in a conquest. That sounds strong. They've sent out spies. They're going to take this land. But then we find out about the people in this land. There's been no battle there for hundreds of years. They don't have an army. Never bothered. No one ever came out that way. It's in the middle of nowhere. But this is going to be a conquest. So they sent out their spies. They assemble this army. But when they go out, when they actually start to march, they put the women and the children in the front. Now, why do they do that? Not just because they're chicken, but they realize the only person we have to worry about is Micah. Because when we march away with all of his idols and his counterfeit temple and counterfeit priest, he might come up behind us. So we'll put the warriors in the back, you see. Remember, this is Israelite Mayberry. The only piece of person they need to worry about is, is a totally fake guy with a totally fake priest. So this is a totally fake conquest. But there's something deeper still. And I don't have time to break it all down for you, but hopefully I can make the case. <coughs> the parody of this conquest, the sham, the satirization of a real conquest. And here it is. Commentators will tell you that chapter 17 from last week about Micah and how the spread in chapter 18 here to all of Dan is a classic sanctuary origin story. Now, I don't expect you to know what that is, but here's how it works. Classically, once a battle in, in the ancient world would be won, you know, you, you, you won that battle and you trusted your gods, whoever your pantheon was, to have been behind you in the battle. And you gave allegiance to those gods and you maybe made a sacrifice depending on what your, your, you know, your religion was, right? And, and all, all cultures did it not just Israel. All cultures did it. And then the climax you see to the battle that was then won is the new king shows his legitimacy and his piety by renovating the local sanctuary of the place that he's just captured. And by means of the spoils of his fallen enemies, he rightfully takes those spoils, that booty, from his fallen enemy shares some with the people, but then he does a refresh of the sanctuary. He does a reboot on the sanctuary for his sponsoring God. And you see this at various places. Remember, we were at Samuel, and the, and the ark was moved into a certain area, and, and Dagon just sort of fell over. You know, that famous, famous spot. Well, <clears throat> you, you go in. And you knock down all the, their 
false gods and you put up your real God. Except, here are God's people. God's people. And they're setting up for one of God's chosen tribes. A false sanctuary with false gods, with false idols, with a false priest in a false temple. What a sham of a conquest this is. That's why we're reminded there is no king in Israel. This is not a real conquest. This thing is a sham front to back. This is a disaster. This is what this is what the church does, you see. When it does not follow its King Jesus Christ in all things. When we start to pick and choose and glue onto the gospel certain things. It can be stuff you've heard about since the time you were in Sunday school. Works under grace. It could be stuff in the culture. Stuff that the culture is now accepted, we decide, will it add acceptance of that sin into what the church is? It could be something like that. It could be, it could be a political view or party adding that onto the gospel. That is a disaster. It is a disaster because all of those things, who is worshipped, how he's worshipped, with whom he's worshipped, where he's worshipped, with what he's worshipped, with heart or a wallet or what, all of that is distorted. All of it falls apart. And then the author of Judges goes all the way down deep into the corruption. Verse 10, the spies go back and they tell their tribe. Take this place. God has given it into your hands. No, he's not. That's not what Jonathan said. Jonathan just threw this, threw this thing out there. Go with God. It's a lie. Now think, they're about to pick up, pack up their fake gods, fake images, fake God. Pack along the pack up a fake priest by giving them a fake promotion and build a new fake temple. But God has given it into your hands. You would think that they would hear how stupid that sounds to themselves. And there's a lot of stupidity to go around, not just for those named Dan, but how about this? After the Danite army walks off with all of the household guys, why doesn't anyone in Micah's house Micah, his mom, Micah Jr., the servants, whoever whoever Micah takes with him to save the gods, why does it occur to them as they're running out after the Danites? Hey, the gods that we made with our human hands, they don't seem to be able to save themselves. Why do we have to do this? They're gods. We worship them. We're not gods. This is all backwards. You're supposed to laugh at how silly they look. Right? 
no one has the sense, not Mike or his friends, to say this is weird. We're trying to rescue from 600 men armed to the teeth, our gods. False religion makes you stupid. There's no such thing as intelligent idolatry. There's no such thing as smart false religion. Sooner or later, it will make you look like a fool. And by the way, dumb always finds dumber. Okay? There is Jonathan in a private home chapel. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's singing Hebrew up in the mountains. You know, nobody speaks Hebrew up there. And the Danites of all places find them there. But that's the way it works. In the same way a bad kid or a bully in a school can find the one other bad kid or bully in the school. And there can be the two of them. That's how it works with false religion. They find each other. Spend 10 seconds on the internet looking for some kind of quirky, religious change you want to make. I'm really uncomfortable with the Trinity. Is there anyone that believes in a Christianity with one God? Oh yeah, they're out there. You'll find one is Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, within that law. And there's a church in the area. Right? That's how fast dumb finds dumber. In the same way, you've got to Watch this in the church. Be discerning because unscrupulous men find each other. Finally, the tragedy of false religion. Well, we pointed out this sort of satire of this chapter, and I, I mentioned Monty Python, but the reason for satire, this definition is from Webster's, is the use of humor or irony or exaggeration or ridicule to expose or criticize a person's stupidity. I was actually kind of surprised that Webster would use that word, but that's what it, that's why you use satires is to expose or criticize stupidity. And I worry about this because if many of us think of ourselves or as, as our church, as a place where this could never happen. Pastor David could never be that stupid. The elders of Hope Presbyterian Church could never be that stupid. You should come to our, our meetings where we're talking about the parking lot. <laughs> you want to talk right about levels of stupidity, you know. Uh, you know, and you know, and then finally Elder Jason says we've been at this for an hour and a half. You know, there's always somebody to sort of bring you back, right? But but we can. This can happen here. But the close of the passage should shake you up and shake you out of an attitude to say, this can't happen here. That the tragedy of false religion is that it can happen to anyone. Anyone. Look at verse 30. Here is a bomb. And the people of Dan set up the car of image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Kershaw, son of Moses, Son of Moses, holy Moses, son of Moses. Now, if you go back to like look at the old King James Version, sometimes you'll see there, not Moses, but Manasseh. Now, what happened is there, 
early scribes from some of the later manuscripts just didn't feel right about this. I don't think they heard the satire. They just heard the tragedy and the tragedies there. So they would put the end vowel. I don't have much time to talk about Hebrew here, but Hebrew is all vowels. So scribes came later and they would put in the consonants, you see. And they just added these consonants and then it comes out as Manasseh. But if you pull all the the, the consonants out, there it is Moses. Moses and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Now we learn that the fake priest, the fake priest ordained by Micah, who put on a fake ephod and worships in a fake temple like a hireling who sold himself out to the highest bidder. By the way, without even telling Micah that he did it, he just said, off he went with the Danites, right? Well, he was Moses' great-grandson. He's all about law-breaking and worship, but he's the great-grandson of the lawgiver. If you don't think this can happen to anyone, you just don't want to believe it. The one who spoke to God, spoke to Yahweh, as close as anybody else besides Jesus, face to face. His grandson, eh, not so much. Which means that, you know, for me, for my family, my family can't say, well, dad's a pastor. He baptized me. I'll be fine. No matter what I do, no matter what I get into. If, if you're one of those people that could grow up in a Christian home, maybe you go to a Christian school, you can't say, hey, everything that happens here must be Christian, so no problems for me. You don't get your faith, kids, mediated through your parents. It's not a family thing like that. Yes, you have advantages to being brought up in a covenant family. And being raised with in a covenant church with covenant parents. But ultimately, you have to open your hands to receive the gift of Jesus. That God has placed there. Having a, 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 you know, a great heritage is great. But it's just that. It's a heritage. The question is, do you have saving faith? Do you have saving faith? Not your dad's faith, not your father's faith, but your faith. A pastor I appreciate, Carl Robbins says, he says, if you're planning on saying, if what you're planning on saying before the Lord and glory is, my dad was an elder or a deacon, or I'm a family of six generations of Presbyterians, that's not going to work. That's not going to work any more than I'm Moses' grandson. You see? No, each of us must do business with God and must say for ourselves, for ourselves, before the Lord, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord.
Have you done that? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the beauty of this day and how even in weakness you can draw and knit our hearts together. What a powerful word you have. What a powerful story this is of just awful, disastrous mission creep and that you would show it and you would expose even knew you were selected through the power of your spirit um, and were set apart and were given a place in your household and their sin is not just sin and overlooked and you don't show us just the good people but here in Judges Lord you show us how a whole tribe can turn away from you and so Lord make us mindful that our hearts are prone to wander as we set our hearts on Jesus. Stay close to him and listen to his voice and know his word and take regularly of his sacraments and pray with brothers and sisters and be corrected by mothers and fathers and even be corrected in our anger by our own children when they see it because they know the word. When brothers and sisters in this church hold each other accountable, beautiful things can happen. And the light on the hill remains bright. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.